On this episode of Water Flying, I am joined by John Brown, a man who has conducted more seaplane rating exams than any other examiner in history. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to Water Flying. I am so excited because. We are on location, actually just across the runway from our office here in Winter Haven, Florida, at Jack Brown Seaplane Base with an incredible legend in the world of seaplane flying, uh, a person that I look up to that has influenced my career in seaplane flying. Matter of fact, without John Brown, uh, I would not have a seaplane license, uh, much less three of them. Uh, and uh, I am thrilled to death because... Not only is this the 60th anniversary of Jack Brown's seaplane base, uh, but we're sitting down with John, who has conducted more seaplane uh, flight exams as a designated examiner than anyone else in history. So single-handedly, um, from my perspective as the executive director, uh, he has influenced and protected and ensured a healthy seaplane pilot population, which is unmeasurable how humbling that is to me and, and how thankful I am for it for John. Uh, so, John, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us uh, here at the Seaplane Base. <laughs> Steve, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, so um, let's start out. Uh, you know, I don't know if everyone is as familiar. I'm sure everyone has heard of Browns that's listening to the podcast. I don't know mm-hmm. how you could be a pilot or a seaplane pilot and not know of uh, this amazing base that is such a historical place, but also uh, where so many seaplane pilots have, have earned their ratings. Yeah, my dad had a vision. Uh, I, didn't, I don't know that he knew what it was going to turn into, but uh, like you said, this is our 60th year now in operation. Uh, dad was in the military. He was a naval pilot during World War II and, and had a chance to fly, fly seaplanes uh, prior to the war up in West Virginia and uh, got a chance to fly him again in, in the, in, uh, over in Hawaii during the war. He uh, enjoyed it so much that it carried forth uh, into his, uh, after he bought or started running the Winter Haven Airport, uh, he took a J3N on trade and uh, he brought it down here to the water's edge and started uh, flying the little uh, J3 around. One of his buddies saw it and said, Hey, any chance of getting a seaplane rating? I always wanted one. Dad said, Yeah, I think we could work that out. That's what it came from. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, gotten bigger and bigger every year (laughs) yes it has so it's pretty interesting story because you guys grew up in west virginia we did and then uh, he went uh joined the military uh without a college degree but as a pilot and went to pensacola and earned a commission uh because he was already a pilot that's right yeah he started in 1939 flying off the canal river in a old uh ironica bathtub a c3 c3 (laughs) Uh, i think it had steve i think it only had 30 36 horsepower too i think with 1050 yeah you know 1050 they they look more like a couch i actually have a set do you really 1934 uh, 1050 floats. I've got to set in the hangar. The <laughs> smallest float uh, Ito ever made or yeah. anybody ever made. But no, he started flying uh, up in West Virginia in uh, 1942 when the war broke out. He uh, went to Pensacola, became a naval aviator. And, you know, he had no college. And because of his flight experience, they did commission him. I think he ended up being a lieutenant commander when the war was over. Wow. And went to Hawaii, of all places. Yeah. He went to Hawaii and uh, he... Uh, uh, stayed there most of the time and he uh, with his experience level the admirals grabbed him up and used him for transport i know quite a bit of the time 
What a cool gig. I mean, so uh, to join the military again without that college education to get commissioned uh, is an unusual route. And they did do that quite a bit in World War II, which is almost impossible to do today, I think, unless you're an Army aviator. Uh, I think they may do it. But uh, again, to go to Hawaii uh, for duty and then to end up flying uh, the brass around uh, as a liaison for the brass as one of their pilots, uh, that's pretty good duty. It really was. <laughs> he, uh, he did other things, too, because uh, I saw pictures of him in fighter aircraft. Uh, so he did a little bit of that. Didn't talk too much about it after the war. I, I wish I could have uh, discussed it with him before we lost him, but didn't get a chance. Yeah, that's a shame. And and not uncommon uh, for former military pilots not to talk about their experiences. That's um, true. And They want to forget it, repress it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then ended up, of again, of all things, coming to Bartow. Uh, so you guys came to Bartow in 52? Yeah, after the war, um, he moved us down here from West Virginia, and he became a civilian flight instructor at Bartow Air Base. And uh, worked there from 1952 to 1960 until it closed. Yeah, so they were flying uh, T-6s? They started out with T-6s there first. And then T-28s? T-28s, and then they uh, finished up with the T-37, the Tweety Bird, the first jets. Yeah, but they were training people from all over the world at Bartow, a lot of foreign pilots. I remember he had, uh, and also... uh, uh, in 1952, in the first class, was Buzz Aldrin, the uh, second man to Wow. It went to Bartow yeah, went went for there. flight da- training. Dad didn't have him in his class. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think, you know, I grew up as a Florida native. Uh, the aviation history, especially in the war years, is so amazing here. Uh, when you look at the inception of Pan Am, and we were talking about uh, yesterday, talking about the seaplane base down in Miami uh, where they had the flying boats. Uh, but if you look at all the history and you look at all the people that have been on water flying and that are in the seaplane community, whether it's Phil Lockwood down at Sebring, which was a B-17 base, uh, Harry Shannon, Amphibians Plus on our board at Bartow, uh, Sun and Fun at Lakeland. I mean, all these aviation events and these individuals are located at airports that used to be military fields. Oh, they were. And you fly around Florida and the majority of the airports were used for military training during the war. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing and everyone thinks of the Goodyear blimp and we the military operated blimp bases all over the state Uh, I remember down in South Florida um, Metro Zoo Miami Metro Zoo there's still a a big concrete pillar that used to be a hangar door uh, support thing and they put hundreds of airplanes from South Florida in there in the 1930s and a hurricane came through and they had 19 blimps in the hangar and a gas line broke and not only burned the blimps, the hangar, but all the civilian airplanes oh, that they had wow. put in there. No, I didn't know about that. So uh, tons of history. Yeah. So you guys came, uh, so you, he moved here, or you guys moved here in 52, and then they shut the base down around 60? 60, they closed it, yes. And seven miles north is Winter Haven. Right after it closed down, Dad came up here to see if he could uh, develop the Winter Haven Airport. Uh, they didn't have an FBO. There was nothing here. I, I remember coming up here with him, and there was a crop duster on the other side mm-hmm. of the field over there where the new terminal is. That was the only person uh, operating, and he, got, he uh, hooked up with the city and started the first FBO in 1960. Yeah, and this was out in the sticks. This I was mean- out in the sticks. <laughs> And this was an old military field, too, of course. They used uh, training for the PAE-18 Super Cub, primary training. So your dad started the very first FBO Mm -hmm. at the field here in 1960. Mm -hmm. And he was doing training. I think they bought some J3s, 150s, or... He had, uh, yeah, he he started out with some J3s, and uh, I know we had a 150 here, and it was primary training mostly. Mm -hmm. And it just developed into some multi-engine training, did some instrument training and things like that. So how'd the seaplanes come into it then? Well, like I was telling you (laughs) earlier, he took this one J3 in on trade, and I remember helping him bring it down from the uh, main airport there to Lake Jesse. There was an old road that the fishermen used to bring their (laughs) their boats down, and we we finally got the thing in the water, and... uh, he was taxiing around, and this one fellow asked him about getting a seaplane rating, and that's how it started, really. Wow, that's amazing. And here we are 
60 years later. Um, It's amazing. Um, The the number of pilots that have come through your office, I mean, you just had a pilot in here earlier today. Yeah, (laughs) another check ride today. I did, yeah. So, uh, so what are we up to now? Uh, Twenty two thousand and one. No, I, I haven't done that many. I think I might be pushing uh, nineteen or so, nineteen thousand. But uh, my brother has done a ton of them, and my dad did before uh, we lost him. He did a lot of. So, I just want to put this into perspective for the audience. I, right now, there are fewer than twenty four thousand licensed seaplane pilots in the world with single engine C. You have done. 19,000 exams. You yeah. have signed 19,000 pilot licenses. Yeah, yeah. I think that's about the number right now. Uh, 48 years, uh, that's what you come up with. <laughs> <laughs> that is so humbling. And, and to know that you've impacted that many people and single-handedly have affected this community at that scale. You know, Steve, I think they recognize it. They do. The city does. They mm-hmm. they really do uh, realize what Brown Seaplane Base has, has accomplished, you know, over the years. And re- the recognition the city gets. And I'm glad. I You know, I, I give all that to my dad, really. Goodness. So we need to talk about that. So there was this time span between uh, 1963 when the school really got its formal roots and, and became a formal school. Um, and then there was about a 12 year period where your dad grew the business and operated the business. And there was a a tragedy involved in that. You want to kind of just cover that. I think it's important for us to, to cover the entire history to kind of pick up where, where you ended up coming into the business kind of unexpectedly at a different level. Yeah. I was helping him out here. Uh, I was in high school and I was the line boy and, uh, trying to catch a ride with somebody anytime I could. But uh, then I went off to college in 68, and uh, I came back in 72, and I told Dad I want to be an airline pilot. (laughs) And he said, I'd sure like for you to stay here and help me. And I said, well, I've always wanted to be an airline pilot. (laughs) So he said, okay. So we started working on my ratings and getting everything ready. And... uh, I asked him if I could take a, 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 a seaplane. We had a brand spanking U-172 up to Chattanooga. That's where I was living at the time before I moved down here to do some seaplane ratings. And he said, that'd be okay. So um, I uh, took the airplane up there with only three people signed up for the course. And I ended up doing, uh, I think it was uh, 12 12 people in, in, in just a little over two weeks getting their oh, seaplane wow. rating. They, their buddies went and told their friends, you know, and then my dad was to come up. I wasn't an examiner then. My dad was to come up and do the, the, the uh, check rides. And uh, on his way up, he was flying an old CB for a friend to deliver it up to Charlotte, and uh, he had a mechanical problem. And uh, he lost, actually, the, the elevator and uh, crashed uh, west of Charlotte, just short of his, where his intended spot was, and, uh, you know, where he was delivering the airplane. And he was killed in the airplane accident. And uh, that's when I uh, came back to the, to uh, brought the airplane back to Winter Haven and uh, uh, got things going here. Uh, I just kind of got thrown into it, but the help I got, is unbelievable from the people around here. All of his friends. Mm-hmm. There was a banker that gave me a, a, a loan that he probably shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was unsecure, I'll promise you that. <laughs> but uh, people uh, really jumped in and helped me and got this thing going. And uh, I'll never forget their names, you know. Yeah. But that's that's uh, how I got into it. And now I look around, and I've been here 50 years, and... Why did the time go fast? <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, I think it's important. Number one, the fortitude uh, that after losing your father, I mean, that's not something easy to go through. And then to come back and stay in the business and to keep going. Yeah. It knocked the stuffings out of us. My brother and myself, I, I didn't know about ever getting in an airplane again. 
uh, I, that was my last thought at the time. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I had just finished that last student up in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. at, and my dad was coming in that uh, next day to do all their check rides for him. And I landed, and I was stamp- stepping off the float of that 172, and a good friend of mine, his father was there, and he had a grim look on his face, and this man wouldn't joke about anything. And uh, he said, you just lost your dad. He was killed in an airplane accident. And I walked off, and, uh, you know, people were coming up to me and all that. kind of want to be alone at the time, you know. And I got back in that 172, and I took off. And mm-hmm. I flew around, and I came back and, and landed. And I parked it, and I got back out again. And I remember somebody saying, He's, he did that because he'd never fly again if he didn't yeah. do that. That was not why I did it. You know why I did it, Steve? I thought, it didn't happen. I'm going to go back where I was and come <laughs> back, and it, it yeah. didn't happen. Yeah, it was, and it, it was too it much to real. process. It was too much, and it yeah. was like, no, this couldn't happen to my father. He could land a airplane in the middle of new york city if he uh <laughs> lost an engine you know yeah and and that that's what i did I, I that's why i got back in that airplane but uh yeah it was a big loss and uh uh i think he'd be proud of this old place now if he came <laughs> I <think> back so. <laughs> i think so and uh i i also want to stress i mean one thing that i didn't want to lose in that story was by this time you were in your young 20s, I think. I was 27. 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's important for people to know that literally on, uh, tell me how you celebrated your 16th birthday. <laughs> well, I, I soloed on my 16th birthday. I got actually got my student pilot license before I got my driver's license. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the order of that was funny. Yeah. Because uh, I think Charlie Hammond did the same thing uh, on his 16th birthday. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, I know Chuck, uh, your Chuck brother, did, did the yeah. same thing. Yeah, my dad soloed me. <laughs> and Chuck too. Yeah, uh, that's just amazing. So, I think that's important. I mean, for inspiration. I, you know, I started chasing airplanes when I was ten. I literally at twelve was bribing my way up into control towers and started uh, a student pilot at fifteen. And so, I really respect people that have done that journey that had that passion and have, have never looked back. Yeah. Uh, they've never deviated from, from this love that once you get this bug in you, um, there's no getting rid of it. The only, the only cure is more flying. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I feel deeply honored because um, out of the 60 years uh, that you're celebrating, um, I've been coming to this base for 40 years of it. Well, wow. uh, uh-huh. which is amazing i had family as you and i have discussed uh in the area and uh every time we'd come to visit family uh we'd come to the base here and and i remember uh renting i uh, used to rent a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> when we could rent you. when you could rent <laughs> yeah. uh and you have uh physically signed uh three of my my, my three seaplane ratings or my three ratings uh, uh three of my ratings so you did single engine c you did multi-engine land and multi-engine c yeah. uh, which we did uh simultaneously uh, in the twin B, in the twin B, huh? Yeah. Because uh, I was getting ready to, I, I had this opportunity to go to the Albatross type rating, and I was like, well, I got to get a multi-engine rating yeah. first. And why would I do multi-land in a Seminole uh, or a Dutch's uh, when I can come fly a multi-engine uh, amphibious seaplane in every flight? Uh, we would log multi uh, tailwheel, multi land, and multi sea, and I was like, "What? What greater kind of time building is that? <laughs> Three birds with one stone." Yeah. Huh? yeah. So, <laughs> so I started coming in '83. Um, at that time, I I think I remember single engine C ratings being two hundred and ninety five dollars. When you came, probably so. When Dad started, I'm not sure they were even a hundred dollars. <laughs> I went up to him and said, "Dad, you got four of us or three of us in college now, and you need to bump that price up a little bit." He said, "Well, maybe I will." 
Yeah, I can remember kind of watching it. I mean, uh, so there's always been Brown's uh, ads in Trade Plane. Oh, I mean, yeah. you always would see them there. And uh, now, of course, you guys are always in water flying. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. And uh, but I remember watching, you know, kind of chuckling as it went from two ninety five to three ninety five, four ninety five, and and again it was so inexpensive in the realm of flying, um, and again the most enjoyable rating that I think anyone can ever do is coming and flying the J three. It's it's near and dear to me because I love flying tailwheel, I love flying vintage aircraft, and. And it really is the essence of, of I think, what we're losing in the highly automated cockpits that we see today. We're, I think we're losing the airmanship skills, the aviator skills. I agree with you. I, I think so. Uh, people, uh, I think you feel the same way I do. I'll, I'll start out in a tailwheel airplane with a stick. Yep. It's an easy transition to the 150 after yep. that. Well, I, it's funny because I did my... Uh, tailwheel in a, a Cessna 120, and I own one today, and, right. I, and yeah. I have for over 26 years now. So uh, that's great. So as um, as a DPE, you've done over 19,000 exams. I think the school has probably done closer to 30,000 ratings. I'd say probably 30. Yeah, you know, Ben, my uh, son-in-law, who's taken over the base now, in just over. Two two and a half years. He's already done two thousand <laughs> seaplane check rides. That's all he does is the uh, seaplane check rides. And again, putting this into perspective, there are less than three thousand multi sea pilots in the world today. Wow! And I think you've probably done two thousand check yeah. rides. Yeah, we had the twin bees here for thirty years. We yeah. had five of them. So that and uh, <laughs> now I'm doing the air cam check rides for them. And so. you had an Aztec. And we were just Aztec, yeah, absolutely. We had the Aztec for about a year and a half. We did a lot of ratings in that too. Which flying that and keeping it cool in uh, Florida weather is a challenge. Didn't work. (laughs) It proved that you can on your oil temperature gauge, the the needle will go past the into the red line. That'll scare you and get your attention. So So, we couldn't keep it down here. I knew something was going to happen. Yeah, keeping them cool is is a challenge. We really tried, especially on floats. I mean, that's. On floats, step taxiing, and then you get your 95-degree afternoons. No, it's made for Alaska. (laughs) So what of the, I mean, so you have seen this amazing transition, not only of the area, but also aviation and the community. What's the, what do you think the differences are between 1963 and, say, 1973, I don't think the community changed that much because I think only in the last 20 years has Winter Haven really blossomed here in the local area. It seems like I've seen more construction even in the last 10 years than I had seen probably my entire life previous to that. Um, So how has it changed like from 63 to 73? What was the transition? And then also the difference of the customers maybe from 73 to 83 to 93 you know, what are those changes that you've seen? Well, with regards to the area around here, no, there wasn't a lot of change early on. 63, 73, 83. Uh, what I've seen lately, though, and this used to be the Citrus Center. Yeah. That, this was all Orange Grove. It was either oak trees or, or orange groves. It was absolutely beautiful beautiful to fly around and look down at them and on the spring day smell the orange blossoms yeah. when you're making your final approach <laughs> but uh there's a disease going around it's called greening and it's a bacteria that affects the the tree and the fruit and it kills it and there's nothing they can do about it right now so the grove owners are just pushing those trees over and selling it for subdivisions, and it's been a huge change. I just heard yesterday on the news, Polk County is the largest growing county in the whole United States, right here where we live. Now, I don't know what that's going to leave Ben as far as being able to come in and make approaches and not get phone calls from people. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. There's still a lot of good lakes out here, and we can go a little more east if we need to. But in that respect, yeah, it it, it has changed, Steve, in the last... 10 years you've been down here oh yeah i mean you can see it 
on a morning like this morning, yeah. calm winds, and you see the plumes, and you know those are orange groves burning because they're clearing the land. That's exactly what they're doing. And yeah, I wonder just, if the infrastructure is here to take care of all those people. We'll have to see down the road. As far as the people coming in for seaplane ratings, 8393 to today. What's well, the transition of the pilots? It's at, at the beginning, it was people that just wanted to try something new at a rating. And I would say 90% of them really didn't have a need for the rating. Mm-hmm. And 10% might have a job pending or they were going to buy a seaplane. Now it's a little more, oh, I do have a need for it. You know, I want to do this. Whether I'm I want to buy an airplane. Yeah. I'm I want to go fly in Alaska. Or I'm going to go fly for Tropic Ocean Airways. Tropic Ocean Airways. Airways. Or yeah. go to Alaska. Yeah, like you said. So I'm seeing more of a need when they come in here for mm-hmm. the seaplane rating than I did in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that sense, you know, while I'm extremely disturbed by the decline of the numbers of seaplane pilots, um, I do see a lot of health as far as people coming in to do it for a living. Uh, again, Nick and Rob uh, with Tropic. Uh, I mean, that is a seaplane example of just how successful a well-run seaplane business can be. I mean, those guys are growing. I mean, every time I turn around, they're buying a new airplane. They're doing something new. Yeah, they've, they've got a need. That's one of the only ways to get down into the Bahamas. It really is, you know, some of the outer islands. So they saw it, the vision, yeah. and they made it happen. And we were talking about this, uh, you know, we've talked about this many times before, but it, it's, again, such a small community. Uh, Mark Twombly and I ran across each other in the aviation community in the early 90s when he was the editor of AOPA. And uh, Rob Saravolo, who was co-founder of Tropic Ocean Airways, uh, his dad was my AME, signed my student pilot's license, <laughs> and was my AME my whole no, life. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> so, I mean, the aviation community is so small. It really is. I see that every day. It is. And Nick went to uh, college uh, in Arcata, California, where we were living, you know, for several years. <laughs> you know, Nick worked for me. Yeah. I hired him as a flight instructor. I remember. Yeah. And uh, we had uh, two flight instructors back in the old days. <laughs> Summer was kind of a, a quieter time for us. It was hot down here, you know, and all that. Well, we usually kept two instructors here. Well, one of them had to leave and go, go back home or something. So Nick was the only instructor here. He flew from daylight to dark. <laughs> we wore him out, I'll tell you, but he uh, that's where he got all his experience, and then he went down to Tropic. Yeah, and I mean, they literally were living on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in Key West in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, so. I can remember those early days. It was, you know, feast or famine for them, and yeah. they really sacrificed a lot, and we haven't had that discussion with them, and uh, we've been talking about getting down there and, and having that discussion oh, with them. Oh, that'll make soon. a good story for you. Yeah. And you've had numerous flight instructors. I mean, uh, Morgan, Araldi. Yeah, uh, yeah. Another local that was kind of had a famous aviation kind of heritage with her father. Absolutely, she does. Yeah. And uh, she volunteered with us for many years. We've had a lot of female instructors helping us here. They, they make great instructors. Yeah. Good stuff. So you have operated, um, again, so just to kind of put this into perspective, um, I don't know, we were trying to figure out how many hours the fleet has flown. Uh, you've owned probably 40 to 50 airplanes in 60 years. Yeah. Um, That'd be a hard number to come with. Uh, come up with. I would say uh, on a normal year, they're putting about 1,200 hours a year on each Cub. Wow. And doing upwards of 600 ratings per year. I don't think it's that many. Uh, probably a little north of 400. But again, we get uh, a lot of pilots coming in for recurrent. You know, every day we'll, we'll be yeah. two or three will come in for training. So do you think that that number has, has changed a lot? I mean, when we see the, you know, what's, I think historically we look at the 80s as the glory years of, of general aviation. Did you see that training drop in the 90s where a lot of general aviation, I don't think you guys really experienced it like the rest we, of general aviation. No, we didn't. It's It's been pretty steady. In fact, now it's even more so. I mean, we, we're staying, been staying very booked up right now with the, the seaplane ratings. Uh, we didn't have any drop-off during COVID. 
Yeah, I remember. I think it might have been. You were the furlough- only ones open. I think it was furloughed airline pilots saying, hey, I've got some time now. I'm going to go do it. But no, it, it was very steady during the COVID uh, years. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? We're now historically looking back to COVID as a period in time. It is. Yeah. Hopefully it's over with now, you know. And so 40 to 50 aircraft over 60 years, uh, God knows how many hours have been flown on them. Uh, you've flown J3s. Or, uh, remember the mall that was here for me? Yeah. Uh, of course, now we, you're working on the second Super Cub, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've op- operated Super Cubs historically over the years. We have. Uh, Cessna 172 has joined the fleet. And I think uh, that's uh, been not the first time you've had a 172. Because no, I remember probably, going back, you had one in the late 80s. Yeah, we've had eight or nine of them over the years. Also, I had 150, 150, two of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Volk was next door with Purple Passion. He was. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, which uh, 150 makes a great little seaplane, actually. I, I, I think so, with the big engine on it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twin B, of course, UC1, which they made very few of. There's very few left. We had five of them here. Five. <laughs> five. Yeah. No, that is amazing. 24 made, and I think there might be six flying. Yeah. Here and overseas. So you had one fifth of the entire fleet that were made. You over had to, the <laughs> we had one or two, yeah, at at all times here, yeah. And I remember the one we flew had a very kind of uh, illustrious background uh, because it was BB Roboso's airplane. It was <laughs> Bravo Romeo. Yeah, and guess who flew in that? With Nixon. Flew. Nixon flew in it with BB Bravozo over to Long Island more than once, and probably had helicopters right alongside of them all the way. And I think they went down to Ocean Reef. Oh yeah, that's where he, uh, Ocean to, Reef. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where he lived. I, yeah. So again, if you don't know who BB Roboso is, uh, he's. You look, Google B.B. Roboso, and it's a pretty colorful character. He was. I've, I got to meet him once. He knew my dad, and I had delivered a, an airplane down to Ocean Reef, and he came up and started talking to me. You know, he, he said, you know, I lost a single B once. I was taken off out of Biscayne Bay, and the prop came off or something like that, he said, and he crashed to hurt himself. But uh, he, he loved seaplanes. He really did. And I think... Uh, I may be wrong on this, but I, I honestly think that Nixon was the only sitting president that ever flew a seaplane while in office, and it was that Twin B. Yeah, probably the first and last. <laughs> Secret Service isn't going to let that happen again. Yeah. And then it was in uh, Caddyshack yeah, uh, as was. well. It was, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that airplane had a, a great history to it, a providence of of. Uh, the history, which just made it that much more special to come do the rating in it for oh, me, yeah. because I just, I'm kind of a geek on that stuff. Yeah. I really geek out on that. <laughs> uh, and we mentioned you had an Aztec. Uh, I don't know, you had multiple Aztecs or just the just one? Just the one. Just the one. Mm-hmm. I remember the one. Yeah. And it would be on the beach out here. Right. It sat outside <laughs> two hurricanes, too. <laughs> Which, uh, that's a whole other story. Hurricanes oh, that you yeah. guys have survived over the years. Yeah. Uh, and then a Cessna 180. And uh, yeah. that was here. And then we had, had Margaret Jackson's Mar- 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 Jackson's airplane. Yeah, I had a 180 on Anfibs. It did oh, quite wow. well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, see, I don't know if I saw the 180 on Anfibs. back in the late 70s, okay. early yeah. 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now the newest addition to the fleet, the Icon. Yeah, we have an icon here now. So I just think it's amazing. You're literally flying airplanes from, I think the the oldest airplane out there is a 37, is it? Or is it a 42? Probably 42. 42. Mm -hmm. So you have a 1942 airplane in the fleet and you're flying the icon. icon. That's right. I I just think that's a great spectrum of of aircraft you're flying. Yeah. Um, And hurricanes. (laughs) I mean, we just went through two. We had an eye come over us last year. We did. Uh, I September. remember, you know, you and I were talking about how little this place has changed. Uh, but I remember the roof being off of it. One, 2004. Uh, 2004, yeah. Hurricane Francis. That's my wife's name, too. Don't <laughs> tease her too much about that. But no, uh, it took the roof off. The uh, I came out during the eye and looked. I thought, we made it. And then the back end came and it took the roof off. Yeah. And uh, we had to do a, 
a lot of work. We had a great contractor that put it back together, and it was a renovation, really. He did a nice job with it. And, and that was I, a big one. Yeah. I mean, that was a big one. The, I remember the Home Depot here. The whole roof came off the Home Depot here. Did it? Really? And then I was staying with Margaret. I came to help Margaret Jackson. She had the Lake Ida Beach Resort. That's right. Uh, which was, and I would always stay there when I'd come into town. Um, we were living out of California at the time, and I was here right after. Yeah, Francis. she had a lot of damage. We got three hurricanes in 2004. Yep. And I started counting up since 2004. We've had six come over us here. Yeah, it's amazing. We just had two uh, last year. Yeah. Um, and literally, though, if you, I mean, the, about the biggest thing that's changed for me is the road coming in because it used to be the dirt road. It was a dirt <laughs> road, wasn't it? Yeah, it hasn't changed since my dad started it. Uh, coat of paint, maybe, but nothing else really, you know, and, and I, Ben, my son-in-law, who's taken over, he, uh, I said, Ben, you can do whatever you want, make any changes. He said, oh, this has worked. We're going to keep it like this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it has. And it's kind of unique because it sits on this little parcel of property that's just off the airport. You can actually taxi here yeah. with your amphib. Matter of fact, Roger Olson brought his 185 right. in earlier. And there's been some pretty interesting people that have lived on the lake right next door. Richard Bach, yeah. Uh, yeah. the author of Jonathan Livingston Seagull, uh, built the house or uh, did he build the house? He didn't build no, it. No, he didn't build it. No. Uh, my dad had a partner over at the uh, other side of the field there at the FBO, and he built the uh, uh, house. And we're thinking it was probably around 1965 or so he built the house. And then Richard Bach bought it from him. Okay. So and it's the owners. unique because it's on stilts actually sitting over the lake. That's right. And back when it was built, it actually had a hangar that you could taxi out of the lake up into the hangar and the house was above the hangar. And that's right. Richard had an, an uh, lake amphib and he'd taxi it right up into the house. Yeah. Now there's right. three apart, three two story apartments where the hangar used to be. That's right. And the house on top. That's it. Yeah. And uh, those are some pretty colorful years. Your dad had um, an interesting relationship, a very strong relationship with Richard Bach, yeah. uh, again, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull, among other books. He yeah. was one of the hottest authors in the, in the 70s when the book he came was. out. And your father and Hugh Downs and Richard uh, filmed a movie together. Yeah, nothing by chance. It was a barnstorming movie that was done out in the Midwest. And uh, Dad really enjoyed that. He did. He enjoyed flying the the old biplanes around. They they had no idea where they they were going every day. They'd put an ant out on a chart, and wherever the ant went, they, <laughs> that's where they would go. But he enjoyed it. And I was just at home, uh, first time from college, you know. And I was. He said, "Here, you you watch the base. I'm going out flying." <laughs> so I didn't know what was. They went all over here. the country, and they just literally were doing like five dollar rides. They uh, were, yeah. yeah. It was, it's a great movie. It's kind of hard to find. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a copy of it on DVD. I think you have an original film version of it. We do. Hugh Downs gave us an uh, original film. Yeah. yeah, so that's pretty amazing. And you've had a lot of celebrities come through the school here as well. Well, we have over the years. We really have. Um, uh, Hugh Downs and ended up getting uh, the uh, seaplane rating with us while he was here. And then, uh, uh, of course, we've uh, had uh, some country music people like Alan Jackson. He was here. And uh, we had uh, Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy did his uh, multi-engine C rating with us. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy's interesting because he actually did his single-engine C, I think, in the lake. He did it in the lake, I believe, yeah. Uh, and that was the way he, that was his introduction to his flying uh, licenses. I think it was, yeah. Which is, uh, so he's the real deal. Yes, <laughs> he, he likes seaplanes, yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, and we've had astronauts come through here, quite a few, Buzz Aldrin and... Well, Buzz didn't do the rating with us. He was okay. a friend of Richard Box, but he came over to visit with us, and, and uh, he, uh, he brought, uh, brought him over to meet my father. You know. Yeah, and then our, our friend Story Musgrave. Oh, wow. <laughs> what an individual. What an accomplisher he is, you know. He's Six doctorate degrees, or hopefully yeah. he doesn't correct me and say, no, it's seven, it but it, it's be. insane. <laughs> and he's a, a medical doctor, uh, Brain surgery, uh, oh. yeah. Neurosurgeon, yeah, uh, just a an unbelievable man, and and literally the guy that fixed the uh, Hubble telescope. He did. That's right. And he and oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, that was another story. We had 
two people come over from NASA. Mm-hmm. This was about, oh, 10 years ago. And uh, didn't say a word. And uh, somehow we found out, or my secretary did, do you know who this man is? I said, no. He's director of NASA. He was an <laughs> astronaut. Mm-hmm. And he brought a friend of his with who was an astronaut. And they, he said, I took the first part of the space station up to get it started. <laughs> but uh, we've had a lot of astronauts in here, too, from France and around the world. So never know who's walking down the sidewalks. Do you? Yeah, and, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the first season of, of the podcast because we had story uh, on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, the only astronaut to fly all of the space shuttles. That's right, he did. He was the only mm-hmm. one that did all of them. Yeah. And uh, he lives here, relatively local, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you've even, yeah, and movies. I mean, you guys have done movies. Your dad did uh, Night Moves. Night Moves. With Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman. He did, and uh, of course, Nothing by Chance. And then we, we were involved with uh, uh, another movie, uh, Brenda... Brenda Star, Star. <laughs> with Brooke Shields. Yeah, that was a fun movie. Oh, darn. I have to go fly seaplanes and do it with Brooke Shields. And get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I did one time get to ride down the elevator with her at the hotel. <laughs> and, and that's an interesting story because they really put you through the ringer on the movie set. Well, they did. <laughs> they, they really did. They uh, The seaplane was used for a lot of, of the shots. They, they wanted a... Uh, the airplane noise. Yeah, <laughs> appropriate, huh? They wanted uh, a seaplane to look like something from the 1920s that was going to be flying out of the Amazon. So, of course, I took the wrong one up there. I took a new 172. <laughs> and, uh, I got it up there, and they painted it watercolor. Yeah. Of course, it rained that night. <laughs> All the paint came off, and the uh, director said, I want that paint to stay on there. It was a borrowed airplane. <laughs> so, so I got on the phone, and he said, ah, they can do it, but they're going to have to repaint it. So I told the director that he didn't care. He, uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't an it object. It didn't matter. Form. So yeah. they painted, and the, and the paint stayed on. And, we, and, and then we had it repainted when we brought it back down here. So it yeah. all worked out there. And you had a future James Bond uh, on the movie as yeah. well, Mr. Dalton. Yeah, he he was a hard worker. I remember watching him. He was always looking at a script. He wasn't going to make a mistake. Yeah. Timothy Dalton. Yeah, so awesome stuff. So what are your, some of your greatest memories and, and moments, you know, through 48 years of being a DPE, through 60 years of the school? What are your fondest memories? What are the, the most significant things that you remember or that you're fondest about? Well, Steve, I don't know that there's one that just stands out. It's the people that have been through here and the stories they tell and, you know, and the excitement they have when they first come off the water, you know, and you hear that, wow, you know, every one of them <laughs> says that. Uh, so that's memorable, it is. And the trips I've had to, in, in the seaplanes, I've been lucky enough to go to Norway and fly seaplanes in South America and, oh, I had a Italy. Oh, Italy, I flew, you're right, I flew well uh, in Lake Como with Cesar, the uh, director there of the operation. Alaska, and yep. you've done that. There's oh, yeah. nothing like it. People, you've got to go to Alaska. You can't, you can't describe it. You've got to see it. Yeah, uh, the only, uh, the, the magnitude, the expansiveness of Alaska can only be seen in person. That's right. I mean, there's just no other way to see it. That's right. And, and seaplanes, of course, are a way of life. The best there. way to. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Labrador, uh, you do an annual fishing trip. Uh, we seaplane. go to Canada fishing every year. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't matter that you're flying all day, every day. Um, and you used to fly seven days a week. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> Until Francis uh, influenced that and kind of reeled you in a little bit. Well, Ben, ben was the one that said that we're going to just uh, we're going to take Sunday off. So I said, I hope it works. <laughs> We've <laughs> never taken a day. Off. We never have uh, a busy day at the seaplane base, the Saturday and Sunday. So yeah, it's working out for him. But literally, I mean, the passion for seaplanes is literally when you take a vacation, you go up to Labrador and go fishing every year. I do. Yeah, they fly us up in a seaplane. Uh, usually it's a caravan or a otter, and we have a ball up there. It's it's the only way to get in there. There's no roads. 
and no cell towers, thank goodness, and uh, we have a great time up there. I had my mall brought up one time, and we used that up there, fished off the mall. Yep. So it, it was fun. Uh, I look forward to that every year. We're going this year, too. Yep, and we've been up at Greenville many years. Oh, yeah. We've run away so from hurricanes to get <laughs> together. Remember the one that came through here and we were stuck up there? Did yeah. you make it back? Uh, no. Matter of fact, I waited till the power came back on because uh, I, I knew it was going to be miserable. Uh, that's, you know, I've been through it that's before. Right. That's right. Why well, come back now and be in a hurry? There's nothing you can do except get hot yeah we were in the middle of so that's a funny story because we were in the middle of closing on the house we had been renting it we had no insurance because we were in between being renters and owners mm-hmm. um in the middle of closing but we had to leave to go up to greenville and then the hurricane was approaching it was a five yeah. and i just told mary grab whatever you can't live without you're going to greenville with me we're driving up there and here we didn't know what we were coming home to, but that's actually when I saw my Super Cub on the ramp up there, and I, I looked at her, and I said, honey, I, I don't know if we're what we're going home to, but we really have to buy this airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the year you bought it. Uh, 2017. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I just think it's amazing that, you know, again, you, you want to participate in in these events and and again greenville's hard to describe if you haven't been there oh it's wonderful well and the weather last oh, God. year yeah. it was perfect wasn't it yeah so i think it's you know the you mentioned the people and that's your fondest memory and i think that's the thing that's important to me about the podcast is it gives me a chance to share the discussions and the relationships i've had with people like yourself that i i cherish so much in my life and that have been so impactful and and added to the quality of my life and given me the memories uh we can go on forever about the endless people and and evenings and afternoons on the patio out here a lot of stories (laughs) we start we uh, someone said uh Let's let's write a book on the seaplane base. It's the patio. <laughs> we, start, we we were putting things together. Some of the instructors, my brother, and we'd written two books already. And we hadn't left the porch. <laughs> <laughs> there were the stories about the porch out there. Yeah, a lot of people have been out there on the oh, porch. Oh man! You know? So we, you know, I think it's important for someone who has done more seaplane ratings than anyone else in history, as far as the being an examiner who's been in the business as an examiner for 48 years, what is the most important skill that you think pilots learn? And this is something that's near and dear to both of us, but what's the most important skill that pilots learn that is a reason why they may want to consider a seaplane rating or what they can expect, how it's going to impact their flying? Well, we hope it carries over after they finish to their land plane flying, what they go back to. It's decision-making, that's what really uh, it's about. And you're on your own. Every landing you make in a seaplane, you're creating a new runway. So you have to be the one that decides if it's the right place to land. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, uh, you find out real quick when you're out there in that seaplane, uh, you push away from the dock you don't have brakes, and you've always had brakes. So, <laughs> so you're going to find out you don't uh, paint yourself into a corner. There's a lot of sitting on your hands and evaluating the situation. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we're what we're teaching is, uh, you know, good decision making. That's what I'm looking for on a check ride. You know, uh, you can't help, and you hope they've been taught the right things and uh, the the scenarios you put them under that you want to see the right response you know well you know you come into any land airport and you can pretty much especially on paved surface airports expect that it's a smooth surface it has somewhat of a clear approach free of obstructions and hazards yeah um when you hit the brakes they're going to work when you start the airplane you can hold the brakes and it's not going to move these are all things that you have to learn, you take for granted as a land plane pilot, for us as seaplane pilots, um, there is no guaranteed approach path. Oh, that's right. <laughs> You've got to develop that yourself. And, and of course, the other thing that uh, we hope you have a great respect for after you get your rating is the wind. It has such an effect upon the seaplane, whether it's the takeoff or the landing or controlling it out on the water. 
Yeah. And we did a whole episode on that with John Gowie, and I think we've just even scratched the surface with reading the wind Mm -hmm. and the importance, again, as a a land pilot, you may not, I think you get that a lot more as a tailwheel pilot. It starts to instill the importance of the wind. Do a downwind landing and a tailwheel and in a hurry and you'll you'll learn you really will <laughs> get that tail downwind tailwheel shimmy that's right <laughs> did the wrong thing <laughs> uh, so you know i think for me uh beyond people that are looking to incorporate this as a way of life or uh an addition to their flying repertoire to to really make it part of their life getting the seaplane rating is going to make a land pilot a better pilot. It's going to teach them a new set of skills, and it may reconnect them with their airmanship skills. I think it does. I absolutely think it does. Uh, you learn what – if you forgot what the rudder pedals are, you're going to remember because yeah, you're going to need right. them. <laughs> that's right. And and I think, you know, for me, it's – all and I've talked about this many times, it's a much more cerebral activity because we're assessing so many different things between the obstructions, the water, watercraft, docks, pilings, power lines. I mean, we're down where you're having to very quickly make a lot of decisions about whether this is a safe environment to operate or not. Right. It's all – And risk analysis. At risk analysis on every landing. Uh, today I did this check ride with this fellow, and we just happened to be over a lake that I wanted him to see. And I said, it was a smaller lake, and I said, uh, look at that lake. Tell me if you see anything out of the ordinary. He said, well, that's small, and it's got some obstructions over here on this side. And he keeps looking, and he keeps looking, and he says, whoa, power lines going across it. Right across the lake. And the sun was shining on it. You, you couldn't can't see, see it, it until you're right on it. A lot of times you only see about out of 360 degrees, you'll be lucky to be able to see the power lines from 90 degrees. That's right. And if, you, if you're not in that 90 degree wedge of point of view, you won't see the power lines. And I think that's you know something I, I wish we could do more to educate people. Do not um, assume. I mean, we've been out in Maine in the middle of nowhere, and I have it in one of my safety seminars where a guy has a generator on the far side of the lake so he doesn't hear it. And he has a power line, and it's a beautiful glassy water approach uh, between two mountains to get in there. And you're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one around, but there's power lines going across the lake. That's right. Out in the middle of nowhere. So you can't assume. Can't assume. (laughs) No, sir. So this has been an honor. It's a podcast that I wanted to do for a long time. I'm so thankful for our relationship, uh, for the time that we've spent together over the years, uh, the flying that we've done. And, and you know... You and I talk quite a bit. Um, we'll bounce things off of each other as far as safe operations or right. incidents or, yeah. you know, how we can impact things better. Uh, what have we for- failed to talk about that we should talk about that we don't want to leave without having a discussion about or mentioning? Well, we, we talked about the number of seaplane ratings done here. And uh, we, we don't make this a factory here. It's, it, it can't be. You can't go home and go to sleep at night if you think you're just pushing people out. Uh, yeah, if, normally the course takes about five hours here. I think around the country that's about what they're using as a norm. That's for a current pilot, you know, to come get a seaplane rating. But, you know, we, we have a lot of pilots that, that just need a little more time. Uh, and some we have to send home before they even get close to the check ride to go back and get current at their home base and then come back to see us. So emphasis has to be, Steve, on uh, safety with the seaplane flying, and I think the SBA does a great job on promoting that. We have to have that. You start having a lot of accidents, and uh, this could go away. So we all have to be on the same team and uh, work with each other and we're working with the community because these landings are you know close to town now i I know ben's constantly over meeting with you know with our airport manager uh, and he's become very active with the airport advisory uh committee over there and then you and i talk i mean and we've talked about difficult check rides uh students that have to get busted you and i have talked about instructors that are that wanting to come on here that Either I saw something that I felt unsafe about or, or you had to make a very difficult decision that this person wanted to be here. There's reasons why this person should have been here in many ways, but they're flying 
wasn't up to par. Yeah, it's hard for an examiner to give a disapproval, but it's I do it uh, because I, I don't want, want to put them, you know, out in a situation where they could hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. And I'll tell you, when I have to uh, bring them back and say, you know, you're going to need a little more time, uh, no one gets upset with that. I haven't had that in a long, long time when somebody's thought, well, no, I think I passed or something like that. Uh, so it, it, it serves a purpose, and, it, it, you know, it happens some, and, and uh, hopefully not, not too much in the future, but we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Uh, it's, uh, I've enjoyed this, I uh, have, Steve, uh, doing these uh, the seaplane training. Uh, I have a lot of airline pilots that come here, and I tell some of them, you know, I was working towards becoming an airline pilot, and they would say, you made the right decision <laughs> with what you did here, you know, and yeah. I think I did. You know, my wife, Frances, has put up with a lot. That was seven days. Like I said, seven kids, days a week. Uh, and, no div- and no divorce. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we have two of the most understanding wives ever. Um, you know, mine got married uh, in flight in yeah. an albatross, and, and Frances has put up with you. Uh, literally, like I said, I mean, historically, uh, if, if it was daylight hours and you were not here, yeah. there was something wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you own a business, you got to come out and clean the bathrooms. That's the first thing. <laughs> and, yeah, so, yeah, but I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. I think that, again, for me, the most humbling part of what I'd like people to take away is the impact that you've had single-handedly and, and with the innumerable instructors that have come through here um, have had on the seaplane community. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself and the Seaplane Pilots Association. Uh, you are a legend in, in our industry. You're a legend and a, and a legacy figure in the community. And um, we are a rare breed as seaplane pilots. And we're also an endangered breed. We've lost about 30% of our pilots in the last, of seaplane pilots in the last 20 years. We need to make every seaplane pilot we can, and we're probably losing 15 to 18% of the population every year just to age attrition. That's right. We really are. we got to keep this thing going. So we need, if you're listening and you don't have your rating, we hope you've been inspired, <laughs> and please uh, uh, come to the Seaplane Pilots Association, go to the Water Flying um, the, uh, Training Directory, and find a school, um, give Give Browns a call and, uh, you know, look up and look into getting the rating. There's about 80 schools across the country. Um, and so there are opportunities uh, oh, in most are. states. There are. There's a lot of good schools out there. And yeah. it is life-changing. It'll make you a better pilot. It'll open up completely new horizons to your flying. And uh, it'll be very rewarding, I can promise you. It really will be. <laughs> I guarantee it. Yeah. So, John, thank you. Uh for sitting down with us, for having this conversation. Uh, I hope to have you back uh, because we have a lot of topics to talk on oh, on safety. We do. <laughs> we do. I'd be glad to do it, Steve. And listen, thank you so much for all the kind words and uh, all the hard work you do for the SPA. Everybody recognizes it. I promise you that. <laughs> thank you, sir. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed this very special and heartfelt episode for myself of Waterflying. And, um, Please uh, keep listening. Tell your friends about the show because we are here delivering some really interesting historical figures, uh, great uh, instructional tips, safety items. There's so many things we're talking about for the seaplane community. And uh, join the Seaplane Pilots Association, get Waterflying Magazine, which uh, is the only full-color dedicated magazine to the seaplane community as well. So, John, thank you for being a part of my life and this community. Thank you, Steve. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. 
The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.